All right, well, good to see all of you today and uh, to worship together. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, we're starting, before we jump into the sermon, um, we um, obviously are doing a lot at church to uh, enhance and encourage your marriage, right? And so we have these two events coming up. Uh, one of it is we want you to be practical and go out and do something in this way. And another is we want you to learn and to grow. And it is uh, very important, right, that we as a um, people of God, that we remember the two things that God, insti- the two institutions that God created is church and marriage. And sometimes we fall in love and we leave it at that. But we want you not just to fall in love, we want you to grow in love, right? And so whether you are getting ready or whether you have been married for decades, um, we wanna just grow in that. And so, um, you know, Pastor Corey Ishida is just on his kind of, uh, he's retiring right now. He has three daughters who are around my age, grandfather. So 40 some years, maybe close to 50 years of marriage, but just uh, biblical understanding. So he's gonna do two sessions and we're gonna try to bring our whole church together. So, um, but you know, we're lucky because we did it closer to Irvine. It's in Tustin, not at Brea, right? So, um, you know, we, we, we did it down here and it's gonna be a, a good time. The best thing you could do for your kids, and I've heard this is not um, anything for them directly, but it is what? to love your spouse, right? And how important that is. And so uh, we wanna uh, think and grow in that and we want you to grow in that as well and uh, how important that is, okay? Um, And then just the marriage builder night that's coming up, right? Uh, We want you to grow in your marriage. We want you to go out and talk and uh, have this time together and how important that is. And so uh, keep that in mind as we do these things that we do not just, Um, have this for someone with a problem, but we want you to increase and make it not just a 90% if you were to grade your marriage, but make it uh, 100% and to work on that always. And so we're looking forward to that. So sign up, crossway-church.com slash marriage. I think it's 20 bucks. um, And uh, so it'll be a great, great time. Um, We're looking at characters in the Bible and they will be, uh, we will be looking at some of the um, unlikely heroes of the Bible. Uh, men and women in the Bible who we would say is unlikely to be a hero in this way. And we're gonna be looking at them. And today we look at Gideon. God calls him the mighty man of valor. And if, we, if you've been in the church or you've read the Bible, you know this story somewhat. And the story of him going and fighting the Midianites and how well he does. Um, But so much more than that we see. Um, We see so much more of what God has done in him and is doing in him. And so what we're going to do today is I want you to have your Bibles out or your apps open to your Bible. Uh, We're going to start at chapter 6 through chapter 8 and just highlight. We're not going to read every verse and I'm not going to go through every verse. But make some highlights so we get a grasp of what's going on. And then we'll wrap up with a few thoughts. First of all, there is an enemy that is against the Israelites. And the enemy is called the Midianites. And they are so powerful. 
Um, just their army is over 120,000, and they would come in and devour all of their food, right? And so when harvest would come about, they would come and take everything, and they would take anything of value from the Israelites. So it tells us in chapter 6, verse 2, that the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They went hiding in the mountains, and they are that terrified of the Midianites. And so this is the context. Can you imagine an enemy coming against us here where we have to go literally into the mountains with our families and the food and water and we're hiding and this is a terrifying time. And it is in the midst of this that God now intervenes because they cry out. And God says, I'm gonna send someone to fight for you, to rescue you. And the person he decides to pick is Gideon. Um, you look at chapter 6, verse 11, and you see the calling of Gideon here. And it says that um, in the second part of verse 11, Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So it's interesting because Gideon means warrior. And so his father named him Warrior, but here he is. He's in a wine press. He's in somewhere that's hidden. And he's trying to get the ch separate the chaff from the wheat so he could have some food so that the Midianites will not come and take this. And so what we see here is not a warrior, but actually someone who's a coward, someone who's hiding. And if you were to pick someone... Right To go and fight for you, you would want to pick someone with experience, someone who is strong, someone who is charismatic, someone who is educated, someone who has gone to war before. And you say, boy, that would be the person I would choose. Here he finds someone in a wine press. You know, it's, they're stepping on grapes in there and he's hiding out there and he's trying to separate the chaff because he does not want to be seen. And that's who he is here. And the irony of this is he calls him in verse 12, and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Can you, this is the, kind of the comedy and the irony of all this. Here he is hiding, and then God says, you, O mighty man of valor. You can almost imagine Gideon saying, uh, are you talking to me, right? Are you sure you're talking to me? And he calls him, and the first thing he tells him to do is he's going to go and now tear down this altar of Baal. Tear it down. And he is so afraid that he goes at night and he barely gets this done. Um, as he goes and tears it down, it's interesting because God says, use, these, use two bulls to go and tear down this altar. And Baal was represented by a bull. And so it was God using the bull to tear down uh, the altar of Baal, or Baal, right, as we would say. And he does this. And then now he says to call your army, get your army together. And this is the famous story of him gathering the army. Um, they're going to go fight against the Midianites, and the Midianites have an army over 120,000 people. So imagine an angel stadium filled up four, three times. 120,000 people who were vicious, and they're going to go fight him. And he happens in chapter 3 to muster up uh, 32,000 people. And God says, it's interesting because God says um, uh, there's too many in verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. So obviously the math 
Already you're out number four to one. But he says it's just too many for me to give the Midianites to you. He wants to make it evident that it is his power, his work. And so he says, go and ask him in verse 3, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him go home. Um, 22,000 of the people return and 10,000 remain. Can you imagine the scene? Gideon calls out and says, okay, whoever's, uh, you, whoever's afraid, are you afraid? Uh, you can go home if you're afraid. But the you know, real men, you know, we're going to stay and fight. And two out of three, right? 66% of his army leave. They go away. And now they're left with a measly 10,000. They're outnumbered 12 to 1, and they're going to have to go and fight. And this army is not that strong. And God says, it's still too many. And you know the story that he reduces the 10,000 down to 300. And he tells us in chapter 7, verse 6, um, right, that those who lap uh, the water with his tongue as a dog, that you should set him apart, and those who kneel. And so... 300 people come to the water, and they scoop it up with their hand. And, you know, so as a dog would lap the water with their tongue, they would use their hand, and they would get water. And he says, those are 300. And the rest, 9,700, got on their knees, stuck their face in the water, and started drinking. Right? So they were hiking. They were hot. They found some water. They're jumping in the water, some of them maybe. And they're on their knees drinking. Only 300 is standing and drinking in a, what might be more of a civilized manner. He says, that's all we need is 300. Now, so this army of 32,000 has shrunk by 99%, even more. And he's down to 1%. And God wants to make it clear that it is God who is going to fight through these people, just in case Gideon and the Israelites forget how they get this victory. And so they go fight, and they surround the, they go into the valley where the median army is, and they surround it on three sides, and each of them, they're carrying, um, you know, a torch, a jar, and trumpets, uh, and a trumpet, and they blow the horn, and they break the jar, and the median ar- Medianite army wakes up, and they look, and they look like they're just surrounded, and there is clashing and uh, noise everywhere, and they feel like this is it. And what happens is they end up killing each other. And the Bible reminds us in chapter 7, verse 22, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So uh, they end up killing each other. The Israelites, they don't even lift a finger. They, They don't even, there's no blood shed on their part. They literally just watch. They're on top of the hills, looking down in the valley, and all of a sudden the confusion happens and they start killing each other. The two kings of the Medians, uh, they run away with their kind of their group, and now Gideon is on the chase. It's interesting because here he, Gideon tastes success for the first time. And then he now goes after the two kings. And on his way to the two, after he's chasing the two kings, he comes to a, a town called Sukoth. And he goes to Sukkoth, and he stops, and he asks the elders of the town, he says, can, we, can you give us some bread? We are chasing down the, king, uh, the kings of the Midianites. We're hungry. My men are hungry. This is chapter uh, 8 now, verse 4. Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, right? And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of uh, Midian. And they, they, they kind of laugh at him. 
And they still say, oh, you, you haven't killed them yet. They're more powerful than you. And whatever it is, they don't give them bread. And he says, wait till I get back. He says, wait till I get back, and I'm going to punish you all with thorns. Right? And he was going to punish the men. And he goes to the next um, uh, region, uh, Penuel, in chapter 8, verse 8. And he tells them, uh, he asks for the same thing, and they kind of laugh him off. And he says, wait till I get back to Penuel after I capture the king's and I'm going to have my revenge on you. And Penuel had this tower that kind of represented their city. He says, I'm going to demolish that tower. And he ends up coming back, and he does it all. He ends up punishing the elders of Sukkoth, and he ends up demolishing the tower of Penuel. And now he comes in, and all of Israel loves him. He's just won the war. He's just done something great. But ultimately, it was God. And as he comes back in and he does this, the people say, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our ruler. And he says in chapter 8, verse 23, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But what he does is in verse 24, he says, but let me gather all the earrings of gold. He gathers it all and it ends up being, uh, in our terms, about 43 pounds of gold. And he takes this gold, 43 pounds of gold, and he erects uh, ephod. And it was kind of an outer garment, a vest that the priest would wear. And he, he makes this out of gold. And he puts it in the middle of the city. And this represented now him. It represented the victory. And it tells us in verse 27, chapter 8, Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in uh, Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. It became their idol all of a sudden. It became now their good luck charm. It became the thing they had to go touch to pray. It became now another altar. And he makes this. And then at the end of his life, uh, and, and Gideon is given this name, chapter 8, verse 29 is a uh, Zerubbaal, it's given by his father earlier when they demolish. It says, who will contend with Baal? That's what it means. Um, and so whether it's Gideon or Zerubbaal, um, it's the same person we see here. And what we see here is that he had 70 sons in chapter 8, verse 30. Um, he had many wives, verse 31, and his concubine uh, bore him a son named Abimelech, who is going to be the next king. Now, one thing, just to, whatever is described in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is for it. And some people say, well, the Bible talks about, you know, slavery or the Bible has, you know, polygamy. You know, how do you defend that? Well, the Bible is telling a story. It doesn't mean that it's okay. This wasn't okay, right? It was never okay. So anyways, this happens. And then he passes away. And after he dies, Israel plummets again and they forget God and they go back into the cycle and God sends another enemy to them to wake them up. There's two extremes to this story and I want to um, highlight that both. One of it is, is um, that we as Christians have to be courageous in our hardships. Some of us are going through challenges, um, difficulties, and we have to be courageous. We should not fear. 
God is with you. This, we see this in the beginning, right? When he is now saying, God, send someone else. I am the weakest. I'm of the weakest clan. I'm the weakest in my own family. God, show me a sign. I'm going to place a, a fleece here. And if it's filled with water, God, or the next day, show it to me again. If it's dry and the ground is wet. And he's asking. He is filled with fear. And it tells us, right, when God first sends him to go and demolish this altar of Baal, that he was afraid. It says in chapter uh, 627, he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. Fear, we think, is tied in with humility. No, fear is a form of pride. Fear is telling God, I don't trust you. I trust me but more. Fear is saying, I don't really care about what you think, I'm so concerned about, just as Gideon did, to afraid of his family and the men of his family. I'm more afraid, I'm more concerned about others think. This is fear. And we cloak it in a form of humility or a personality, or we say, oh, it's just not me. But when we say to God, I'm too afraid to do this, and when it's time to take the next step, and you know God wants you to take the next step, and you say, I'm too afraid, it's a form of pride. It's us saying, God, I don't know if I could do this. God, what do you know? And we have to be very careful in our fear because we often think that is excusable, and I think it's a sin. Uh, It is G.K. Chesterton who said that the paradox of courage is that a man must be a little careless of his life even in order to keep it. Fear. I remember as a college student, my college pastor took me, um, took a group of us to uh, do like a homeless feeding in Skid Row. And uh, he told me, hey, I want you to prepare. And he told me the night before, I want you to prepare a sermon. Right? And I was, I think I was at 19 at the time, or 20, I was a junior. And um, I said, well, what do you mean a sermon? That's your job, you know? And then he says, I want you to prepare it. And hindsight, I'm like, I still think he was just kind of passing it along because he didn't want to do it. His English was kind of bad. And, you know, so anyways, I was like, on the street, and I got, you know, a 10-minute sermon. By the way, the longer the sermon, it's easier. You know, it is the shorter ones that are very difficult. It's like an insider thing for pastors, right? Um, Because you have to really pick your words carefully. And the longer it is, you can just keep going on and on and on. 10 minutes. He says, at 6 a.m., you're going to give the sermon. I remember terrified. And I remember right before I was supposed to go up, you know, it was kind of like the, just crudely say it, it's like the timeshare speech, right? They got to hear the message in order to get the food, right? And so anyway, so they're going to um, come up, they sing a few songs. And during that time, I still remember I approached the gentleman who was, um, you know, a Spanish speaking. And I, I, in my kind of absent-minded youthness, I asked him, this, this is a homeless feeding, right? And I asked him, where do you live? You know, like, donde vive? And he says, in La Calle, and I was like, in La Calle, oh, on the street. I was like, oh, why would I ask something so dumb? And now I have to go preach. And I remember having to go up and preach and thinking, I, can't, I don't think I could do this. There's no way I could do this. Um, especially, you know, how am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Fear says to God, I don't, you don't know. I know better. Fear says, I'm not going to obey because I know better. And maybe for some of us, 
You are in a difficult situation. You are afraid. And God is saying, hey, I want you to go and I want you to talk to this person. I want you to step into something a little bit uncomfortable. And I want you to invite that person to church. Or I want you to have this time and say, oh, gosh, I, God, I'm just too afraid. Fear is not meekness. Fear is not self-control. Fear is not humility. Fear is pride. And we have to keep that in mind. Secondly, we see the latter part of his life. After the success, if you could imagine Gideon's life here in the wine press, he gets called, he destroys the altar uh, Baal, uh, and then he gets now and he recruits the 30,000 and he beats the Midianites. And after the success, as his life is wrapping up in that success, the latter part of his life is filled with success. And we have to be remember, we have to remember that we have to be humble in our success. Um, success can make us think I have done something. Pride is telling God, I don't need you. Fear is saying, I don't trust you. But pride says, I don't need you. You can imagine life as he is, from the moment where he was getting revenge, you know, and he goes up against the elders of Sukkoth and he punishes them and he destroys the tower of Penuel and he does all these things that he takes it all personal. And I think this is where his pride starts kicking in. Who were you to do this? I knew I could do this. And he forgets the hand of God that was upon him and how God used him in this way. You know, Tim Keller uh, comments about Gideon. He says, success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves, that we can do this. As Ravi Zacharias says, that success is more difficult to handle than failure. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12 where he talks about the young man who accumulates much and he builds bigger barns and he makes all this stuff and when God calls him home right um, and he tells himself it's in the middle it's interesting because the man in this story Jesus tells in Luke 12 19 says he talks to him says soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink and be merry and this is now where Gideon heads off to Many wives, concubines, he names his son Abimelech. That means the son of a king. He thinks he is the king, even though he pays lip service. And I think what he does is just lip service. Oh, uh, uh, you know, God is a leader. And some of us are, could just go through the motions. Oh, yeah, we trust in God. I, I'm a Christian. We go to church. But we are so self-reliant. Why would I pray when I can make everything that I need? Why would I seek God when I can now provide for myself? Why do I ask God for anything when I don't need anything? And so it is in our successes that we have to be very careful that pride doesn't sneak in. Because ultimately, when we come to the cross, none of us has done anything to earn God's favor. And none of us can come to God and say, God, look what I did for you. It is all by him. All the material things that we have, our health and our age and the place that we live, everything is by God's grace. And so we cannot approach God in this way. You know, there was a video that went kind of viral, a football player from the Steelers, uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, and I saw it yesterday, right? He goes home, and I think he put it on his Snapchat or whatever he did, but he goes home, and his mom says, boy, go sweep, go sweep the uh, driveway, 
And he kind of jokingly says, Mom, I don't do that. I'm, on the, I'm an NFL football player. You know, I don't do that stuff. And then she uses some kind of uh, unchristian-like words, but she says, you better get out there and sweep the driveway. And he shows it, and she hands him the broom, and everyone likes it, right? We're like, oh, yeah, you know, mom's putting him in his place. He knows, you know, success isn't getting to his head, and he knows his roots, and so on and so forth. It is easy for us to think that I control everything. It is easy for us to think that it's all about me. The way that we combat that is to hear the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves. You think about Jesus Christ, and I wrap up with this thought. Jesus Christ, in the gospel, takes someone who is like us, who is fearful, says, I can't do anything. He says, you're my mighty man of valor. You are mighty because I'm with you, because I've done. So the gospel raises us up. The one who says, I have nothing, raises us up, says, you are a son, you're a daughter, you have everything of mine. And all at the same time, the gospel takes someone that says, like the Pharisees, that says, God, look what I did for you, look what I have for you. He says, no, 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 you, none of that is from you, it's ultimately from God. And so we approach the gospel and we are lifted up and we are humbled at the same time. That's where we need to be. This story is not just about Gideon, but it is about his God and our God and what God has done for us. And what do you have, man? What has God blessed you with? How can you make sure that doesn't get to our head? It is so easy. that We go to him, we hear the gospel, we live for him, for something greater. And that is my prayer uh, for our church today. All right, let's pray together. Um, dear God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we have everything in you. Um, and you raise up, Lord, the fearful. And you use the unlikely people. And God, at the same time, you humble us. Nothing we did, nothing we possess, nothing we know impresses you. It's all by your grace. So God, we come to you. In our fear, God, help us to trust you. In our success, help us, Lord, to praise you. Help us to understand you. It is all by your grace. We thank you, God. And I pray for my dear sisters and brothers here. God, if there are some who are in a difficult time, God, make your presence known to them. May you be their strength. And God, if any of us, Lord, have found success and you have blessed us, God, help us to come to you daily and thank you and to use it for your glory. Lord, that is our prayer today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.